0: welcome to fading memories a podcast with advice wisdom and hope from caregivers who have lived the experience and survived to tell the tale think of us as your caregiver best friend when i learned that despite eating as healthy as possible we can still have undernourished brains i was frustrated i also live in a farming community so i'm aware that our food isn't grown as well as we need Learning about reserves, Relevate, and how it's formulated to fix this problem convinced me to give them a try. Now, I know many of you are skeptical, as was I. However, I know it's working because of one simple change. My sweet tooth is gone. I didn't expect that, and it's not something other users have commented on, but here's some truth. My brain always wanted something sweet. Now, fruit usually did the trick, but not always one bad night's sleep would fire up my sugar cravings so much they were almost impossible to ignore you ever have your brain screaming for a donut well for me those days are gone it's been about six months since i started taking the supplement and i have no regrets i believe in my results so much that i'm passing on my 15 percent discount to you try it for two or three months and see if you have a miraculous sweet tooth cure or maybe just better focus and clarity. It's definitely worth a try. The discount link is in the show notes. All of us have crossroads in life, challenges we have to overcome. Those of us who have had the experience of caring for a parent with Alzheimer's seem to have more crossroads and more challenges. Coping with the disease, what it does to everyone's life, even the eventual end, poses decisions and heartache. How can we honor our loved ones while also healing ourselves? Can we do this while they're still alive? In this episode, I talk to Paul Travers, author of Dancing with the Mountains. Inspired by his dying father's dream of hiking the Appalachian Trail, Paul hits the trail and finds a miracle in the healing powers of America's sacred mountains. More than a travelogue, this is a love story about fathers and sons, families battling Alzheimer's, and the people and places along the Appalachian Trail. Sprinkled with humor and humanity, Dancing with the Mountains is a spiritual story about love, life, and healing. Thank you for joining us, Paul. I have read the entire book, and we're going to talk about that today. But first, I'd like for you to tell the listeners about yourself and your dad, because you did this, what was it? It's about a six-month hike. Well,
1: it, it was a six-month test that lasted over two years due to injuries. In, in 2009, I was ready to retire from my employment with the federal government. And at that time, my father had been three years in a nursing home with Alzheimer's in late, stage, late stages of the disease. And uh, by chance, I was going through my desk, cleaning out my stuff, and I found this old newspaper article from probably the early 80s about hiking the Appalachian Trail and right away that connected me because in the first I, for first chapter you know I, I tell about my father and I we were at a state park when I was 9 years old and my father said one day we're going to hike the Appalachian Trail and here it is I'm 9 years old you know I got like my Davy Crockett hat and I got you know a, a pen knife and a little canteen and I thought boy that sounds exotic I had no idea what the Appalachian Trail was It sounded like something from Daniel Boone, but, uh, you know, the years passed and my father never got the hike because my father had a war injury, uh, sustained in the Pacific, uh, where he almost lost his foot and it kind of hindered his dream of ever becoming a park policeman. Uh, he couldn't even become a mailman because he had trouble walking and he walked with a strange gait. So after that he settled for a career as a, uh, Window clerk with the post office, which is now the postal service, so I was at the point of retirement, and my family had been battling alzheimer's, oh probably for about five years now, with three years of my father in the nursing home and it it was wearing the family down, especially my mother. My, my mother was crushed by this I mean this, this was the darkest night of her soul that that tested her faith and religion to its foundations. So I, I, said that, I said to my wife, Kathy, I said, you know, I said, I would like to find to give some purpose and meaning to my mother for this illness. And I said, Appalachian trail hike. I said something I always want to do because I was always kind of a, a physically oriented guy. You know, I, I used to run marathons until I had foot injuries and I, I couldn't run anymore. So I said hiking the Appalachian Trail. And that connected me back to that incident at the state park with my father. So I was a little leery about doing this because my mother, uh, you know, she was battling her own illness with cancer. And in essence, you know, I was, I was a caregiver for my father also. And I felt like maybe I was abandoning the family. But then when My mother blessed this idea, said, you know, do this, you got to do this. You know, and it was for the Alzheimer's Association. So that, that, that was the, the genesis or the seed of the hike.
0: Let me ask a question about your dad. When he said that someday we're going to ha- hike the Appalachian Trail, was that just like a pipe dream? Like the whole time I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, you know, he only mentioned it the one time and it stuck with you or was it something he talked about? You know, and you said he that's not something he would have ma- been able to manage because of his war injury. So take me to that spot. that sparked your journey. But I was always curious. I'm like, I wonder why they never did anything even, you know, part of the trail or maybe I don't know. Do you have a, any idea a, why he said that?
1: A one time. Incident or event. And my father was always outdoor oriented. I mean, we would visit parks, we would go, uh, you know, to national parks, but my father could not walk long distances. I mean, it it just, he couldn't do it, physically couldn't do it. And like I said, he walked with a strange gait, almost like a limp. And that that just, for some reason, it was like getting struck by a lightning bolt, you know, like the Appalachian Trail. It sounded, you know like a pioneer thing, like the Wild West thing. And it was, you know, an American explorer thing. And it just stuck with me. And then afterwards, uh, in that chapter, I mentioned the fact that years later, I actually became a park ranger. And this happened at a place called Patapsco State Park, which is just west of Baltimore. And I was assigned to Patapsco State Park. And it was like, I remember sitting in the parking lot, you know, my, my first couple of days on the job. And that's, Remembering when my father said we're going to hike the Appalachian Trail, so that that idea always stuck with me. And then I, you know, being a park ranger, you had friends who had hiked the Appalachian Trail, and I over the years I had hiked various small sections in uh, West Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, but never really did a big chunk of it. So you know that idea was always in the back of my mind. And most people, when they retire, you know, they want to, you know, vacation in the Bahamas or Hawaii, no? <laughs> I talk my wife in the hiking uh, the Appalachian Trail for for that year. It was two thousand one hundred seventy eight point three miles.
0: That's insane. How far? Let's see. I'm in California, and you're in Maryland. Isn't that hike about the same distance from between us? I'm terrible with geography.
1: Yes, it, it'll get you past. I guess Denver out there, and yeah.
0: Okay, so it'll get you to the continental divide, and at that point, it's going to get real tough.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: I don't know. I think I still suggest United Airlines. <laughs> so you decided that you were going to do this, but you did it slightly before you retired. Because you worked for the federal government, and you had a little, few little hiccups getting to the retirement process. Do you want to talk about that? or? Yes. That uh, was, okay, because that was interesting, considering uh, our current state of being.
1: I became kind of a counterculture hero to the younger hikers uh, because i was retiring and i was part of I, I signed a whistleblower's complaint basically we had been denied financial benefits over the years and where i worked i worked at a, a government agency that granted security clearances and we were all civilian except for the management, which was the command staff were all military. So it was a strange hybrid. So I thought, well, I'm retiring. I'm I'm going to go on leave. Yeah, I'll sign on to this, never thinking of the repercussions. And then when when I was on the trail at Fontana Dam, just entering the Smoky Mountains, I called home. My wife said, you got to come home. She said, the FBI came to our house and they want to search the house for weapons, chemicals or explosives because people in the workplace had made allegations of violent and abusive behavior in the workplace, which were never substantiated. And the people I worked with were people that made the allegations I had never worked with, which it was a trumped up situation. I had to come home off the trail for three days. Had to hire a lawyer, meet with the FBI agents and my lawyer. Uh, Eventually, the the charges were the the charges were ever filed. The allegations were the investigation was closed favorably. But the taught me a lesson about uh, the long arm of the government. Right? You know, people were out to protect their jobs because the military jobs were shifting over to civilian jobs. So one day, these people walked out as. Colonel, lieutenant colonels, the next day they were walking in and senior executive positions. So, you know, and then once they had me out of the system, I had no recourse to address any grievances such as a financial misconduct in the workplace. So uh, what normally took 60 to 90 days to retire took me three. I met with my lawyer on Wednesday. After we met with the FBI agents, he said, "Well, he, I said, "I got to get back to the trail." So my wife was pushing me out the door because she was home by now. So I get back on the trail. On that Friday, I called home, and my wife said, "You got an email from the Office of Personnel Management in the Department of Army saying, as of close of business today, you are officially retired from the federal government." So, and then my lawyer told me that my case had the commanding general's interest, and at the time, this was belonged to a lady with two stars on her shoulder. So, yeah, this request for an inspector general's investigation, uh, it garnered a lot of attention from the high ups in the military. But it made for a great trail story, (laughs) and it got me a lot of free beers. (laughs) It was (laughs) the longest free beer run, I think, maybe in the history of long-distance hiking.
0: Which that's one of the things that I found interesting is all the people that fed you and I don't can't say wine and dined, but beer and dined doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> but um, I did want to point out my dad was also a Marine. My dad is, would have been 80 this year. And so he was also stationed at Camp Pendleton, but he never he managed to sneak between wars and skirmishes and all the ugly things that we end up doing sometimes. So I when I read that in the book, I was like, aha, I know that place. <laughs> One of the reasons my dad only lasted four years in the military. No, I take that back. He wasn't at Camp Pendleton. He was at 29 Palms. Okay, my brain's not working too well today. I don't know. He yeah, must that- have He must have done stuff at Camp Pendleton, because I had a connection when I read it. But 29 Palms was not his his uh, ideal living environment.
1: <laughs> no, 29 Palms was... That's not where he wanted to go, because we would do... Uh, Camp Pendleton, you and I was in, we would do, we would have exercises at 29 Palms. So we call it going to the desert. You didn't want to go to the desert at 29 Palms. There was basically nothing there.
0: No, he used to say they raked the sand into grass patterns. Yes. And he never, he never liked it hot. So. And I don't
1: think there was even 29 Palms, you know, you, 29 Palms, you think of 29 Palms in an Oasis with green, <laughs> lush greenery. That
0: was... Nope, nothing like that. Not at all. So I thought that was kind of an interesting connection. Now I'm going to have to look back through the family stuff and figure out where the Camp Pendleton connection is. Anyway, just a side note. So you decide to do this almost three thousand mile hike that takes about six months, and you were well. You, let's see. You were this is prior to your expedited retirement. You and your, your wife never planned to do the whole thing. Cause was, she still working at the time. I no, forgot she, now. She, okay. she,
1: she had, uh, she, she was retired.
0: Okay. But that was not her forte to walk that many miles.
1: No, uh, she just, God bless her. She just wanted to be part of the hike. So she wanted to hike the first 100 miles and the last 100 miles. And it turned out to be the first 50 miles and the last 50 miles but my wife is, you know, I, I would say she's athletic, but she's not a long-distance hiker. So she just wanted to be part, you know, of what we called Herm's Hike. That was the name of the hike.
0: Now, that was exactly where I was going. So you decide to do Herm's Hike as a fundraiser for the Alzheimer's Association. You want to tell us how you mani- managed to raise, you, your goal was $10,000. You almost got there.
1: Just over 7000 Uh,
0: Which is good money.
1: Yes, because basically this was a grassroots movement. I had some local publicity. Unfortunately, I couldn't garner any national publicity events or promotions. You know, I I tried my darndest and that's the way things work out. But, you know, I felt uh, because then I met some people on the trail and after my hike that had done fundraisers for uh, various, I I would say, charities. And, you know, diseases. And they said, they said, Paul, you did pretty good. They said, you did real good. They said, you were averaging like $3 a mile. They said, you know, it was like three. I think it broke down to like $3.55 or so. They said, you know, you should be proud of that fact. And and I I have to say that the fact that I was uh, hiking for the Alzheimer's Association and I had little cards that I handed to people, it really opened the door for me. Uh, I know a lot of people's lives and a lot of people's stories on the trail. So, yeah, it, it was a good thing all the way around.
0: And plus it, kept,
1: it kept me motivated, uh, you know, in times of uh, despair, <laughs> when, when you're um, emotionally, mentally and physically, I guess, drained, exhausted, because the trail becomes at first it's physical. And, and after you're halfway through it, it becomes a mental battle. You know mile after mile the, start, the every, all, every all the miles start to look the same way after a while until you get to the white mountains and then you know you know you're in in the mountains because they say once you reach New England, you've done eighty percent of the trail but only twenty percent of the work
0: <laughs>
1: and i said well I, now i after I got done, I thought maybe it's ninety percent of the trail and only ten percent of the work because uh once, once you hit the White Mountains, you got the Mount Katah, and It and it was very difficult, strenuous, hard hiking. But uh, the rewards of being up on the mountain ridge lines were, you know, what I had envisioned from the start. That was my Himalayas. Mount Washington was my Mount Everest. And, it, you know, I, I, it, was, it was a joy to hike in the White Mountains.
0: <laughs> it didn't sound like it or read like a joy. <laughs> it sounded extremely terrifying and difficult and there was many times you were by yourself which also doesn't sound super it doesn't sound like that's the ideal way to go about it
1: no if i tell people if you want to hike the at do it as a section hiker take three months hike one section come back the next summer hike three months but you know since i was hiking for the alzheimer's and i got hurt in 2009 you know, I, I felt the kind of pressure was on me, on me to complete the hike. And I deliberately left early because I wanted to be one of the area, what they call a noboes, northbounders, because I wanted to stay at the huts in the White Mountains where you can work for stay.
0: Yeah, that was an and, interesting section of the, of the book, of the journey, that you could do that.
1: And it worked well. I, <laughs> I got to stay. And I think because I was an older guy, Right. You know, I'm pushing 60 years old now back then. I would go to one of these huts and sign up. And like I said, normally they only take maybe five, seven people. But since I was one of the early hikers, I I was there was always a short waiting list. So I would go and and your job would be like washing dishes, sweeping floors, this kind of cleaning out a, a freezer. But I, I guess people looked at wanted the crew, they're manned by the crew, the CROO. And they're just college kids. And they do a tremendous job with these huts. And the huts are basically for hiking tourists. And then in the evening, the crew puts on a skit where they skewer everything. They're, they're, there's no sacred cows at <laughs> these skits. So when evening would come, you would work, and then you got to eat the leftovers. And then also you got to sleep indoors. But normally, I, I, they'd assign me to sweeping floors or cl- washing dishes and Maybe 15 minutes, half an hour later, someone would come by and say, Paul, that's okay. You've done enough. Okay, go get something to eat. And <laughs> in a couple of the huts, you know, I'd, I'd be getting ready to to lay my sleeping bag out on the, uh, I guess, the dining room floor, which was like a, com- a community room, community area. And someone would tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, we have a bunk in the back. If you'd like, you can sleep in the bunk. So, yeah, my hat's off to the uh, Appalachian Mountain Club people who run the huts because uh, they really looked out for me and there's nothing more appreciated than a soft bed (laughs) (laughs) and a hot meal on the trail and then when you woke up the next morning if you wanted to stay after breakfast you could have breakfast leftovers because most hikers you know they're in a hurry to get out the door put some miles on, on on the trail but I usually stayed for breakfast hoping for some bacon but (laughs) The bacon. By the time people went for second and third, the bacon was all gone. But you had plenty of pancakes, Dee.
0: Well, my husband and I are cyclists, and the the most strenuous cycling we've done is sixty five mile rides. Most of those are charity rides, which compared to the at you know sounds like a a a ride around the block, which it's not. But you got to fuel up properly, and pancakes is a good way to fuel up. But you got to have the protein to keep you keep you going to at least lunch. But I laugh because I've got two golden retrievers and the older one is the girl. And holy man, that dog, she loves her bacon. And, you know, we're we're getting a little older. My husband's on blood thinners now. You're trying to really I mean, our, our nutrition, our diet was pretty good. Bacon's not really a great thing to eat. <laughs> so the dog is disappointed in us because we have cut back even further on our, you know, three or four pieces of bacon in a week. So it just that cracked me up that you were you were hoping for bacon. And I just immediately thought of the dog sitting there at the table like, please feed me some bacon.
1: Because <laughs> that was one of the mantras on the trail. People would say you got to fuel the machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I had lost oh, quite a bit of weight. And it got to be noticed by towards the. Uh, At the end of 09, when I fell in Vermont, you know, people were saying, have you seen yourself lately? And I started off, I was weighing, after sitting behind a desk, drinking coffee and eating donuts for 30 years, I was probably weighing about 193 or 4. And when I got home in 09, after I fell in Vermont, I weighed, oh, just under 160 pounds. So that was because my wife said, she says, my God, she says, you got you got the muscle built of a ten-year-old boy," she said. "You lost all this muscle mass in your upper chest, and I did because I, I I got to the point where I was continue I was constantly hungry, continuously eating, yet I I couldn't seem to put on I couldn't put on any weight because I was yep. just burning calories off so much with all the with all the hiking.
0: Yeah, and it it's not like I, I mean there's like hand over hand climbing up rock kind of hike. It's not just all walking. There was climbing. There was some some rough sections in there, but I want to back up a little bit before we get to the injury in Vermont that sidelined you for one season, or that the, the remainder of the 09 season is probably a better way of putting it. This whole journey was very, very spiritual for you, and you are, which you, you always like to say, a former altar boy. and old altar
1: boy. That, that, old was, altar. That, was, that was my, when people say to me, well... Because you, you met a you guys, you read the book. I met a lot of religious people, you know, whether it be pastors, ministers, and when they say, "Well, what's your background?" I would say, "Old altar boy." And as soon as I said "altar boy," they knew, you know, Roman Catholic. And then but when you, they asked questions uh, further, and I, found, I said not only Roman Catholic, I said Polish Catholic. I said, you know, I said the Pope is Polish. You don't get any more Catholic <laughs> than that, and they would just laugh, but. Uh, Yeah, that was was my response to people, was old altar boy. And immediately they knew what I was talking about.
0: So do you want to talk a little bit about the spiritual part of this whole journey? Because I'm not sure most people could do this without having some of the experiences that you had, I think. I don't know. It's not a journey I want to attempt. So (laughs) I will live vicariously through you. Because
1: I I started off with the idea of raising money for the Alzheimer's Association. And in the back of my mind, I was going to prove that 60 was the new 40. (laughs) <laughs> and I realized I was one of the older hikers out there, but I never really gave it much thought about a spiritual journey, probably in, until I started meeting people. Oh, geez. Like in the first week uh, I met this gentleman, Mark Jordan. He was a, the first he was our first trail magic for my wife and I who went by the trail name of Rainbow Bright, which was sort of bright. So he had candy bars and some, some Cokes and stuff and, and water. And he he was a big burly guy. And he had an army field jacket on and he had a puppy in his hands and he's wearing long pants and he's got the uh, sandals with socks on. (laughs) So we got to talking and he was a former army ranger. He built himself as a Christian warrior and a trail mystic. So he says, Paul, he said, you're going to be out there, he said, alone with your thoughts. He said for six months, he said, you're probably going to relive every detail in your life over about 10,000 times, which was probably a low estimate. (laughs) And then he said, you're going to get out there and start asking yourselves questions about why are you here? Why are you on the trail? What's the purpose of your existence in life? And that was the start. And then I got to my wife and I got we climbed. We came down Blood Mountain after almost being washed down the mountain the night before in our tent at the Wali C. Which is a mountain outfitters. And there we met a lady by the name of Susie Miles. Who had a trail ministry and she was cooking hamburgers for hikers so we got to talk about you know her trail ministry and then i told her you know about herm's hike and then when she was asking me my trail name and i said well i said it started out rain man because i thought i liked the rain walk in the rain but after the first 60 days 42 were in the rain people said no you're not rain man you're not rain dance you don't have a name yet so i said it's just paul i said I thought about Paul on the road to Damascus, a little pretentious right down in the south there. And she said, she said, I like that. She said, it is Paul on the road to Damascus. And she says, as you go down a trail, she says, keep connecting the dots in your life. And that's what eventually ended up becoming the cosmic dots in your life, which became your cosmic and portrait in your life. And at the end, you know, I came to the firm and believe we're all connected in life and that's what I preached to my mother. Once I got home and my father passed away I, I, at the very end of the, a book, I call it The Wednesdays with Franny, kind of a takeoff on Tuesdays with Maury, the famous best-selling book. And, you know, my mother and I would just sit and talk, not like father and son, like two old friends who had journeyed many years down a road of life. And, you know, we talk about it. and nothing was off the table, whether it be you, you know, what you did as a teenager, your former friend, <laughs> your former girlfriend, anything. And my mother would always say, you know, I'm ready to die. You know, I'm dying from cancer. I don't know why God didn't take me. And she and throughout, she was always, I can't believe that God would let bad things happen to good people like your father. And finally, when I got done, I would give her the answer. I say, Mom, it's because we're all connected in life. Everything is for a purpose we may not see or understand that purpose here, but it is. I said, there may be one person in the nursing home that was affected by you or pop. I said, and that's what I call the cosmic connection. I, I get goosebumps here talking about that. Because as sick as my mother was, when my father went to the nursing home, my mother, a little bit in despair, you know, what can I do? And my mother became, the nursing home became kind of her own personal ministry. And I, I told people, my mother, a little Polish lady, right? I mean, my mother stood probably about five foot four, if, if she was maybe a hundred pounds soaking wet. But she approached that with, I called her the uh, energizer bunny, because she was always at the nursing home, comforting, or helping people in any way that she could, you know, in addition to my father. So that, your that mom, was really, the, you know, the spiritual part of the journey for me was was, you know, seeing my personal journey and then seeing my father's journey in his battle with Alzheimer's.
0: Well, one note on your mom. She was a Rosie the Riveter during World War II.
1: Yes, it was. Uh, uh, here, Here's a little side. Uh, my mother was working a machine and got her hair caught, and my mother was always proud of her hair. So they had to stop the machine and cut her hair to get her out of the uh <laughs> but my mother, you know, like I said, the, the, I, would, I used to joke about a little Polish lady, but uh, she was tough as nails and and she weathered the storm with my father's disease, uh, found a purpose and kind of that her own personal ministry at the nursing home. And and I think at the very end, you know, she was she was she was saying she would say, oh, you sound like your hippie friends from, you know, the 60s and <laughs> 70s, I, She said, well, you're like a a new age mystic. I said, no, mom. I said, I said, look, she's and then she would always talk about she said, I wonder what it's like on the other side. And I I would, you know, you know, because, you know, this was uh, still a love affair with my father. And I said, I said, well, look, I said, you know, being out in nature like I was, I said, look what God does with nature. I said, imagine what he can do with your dreams. I said, heaven is what you dream it is. And that I think that really struck a nerve uh, for her. You know, because we we, we 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 would banter back and forth jokingly, you know, about oh yes, you're gonna meet your loved ones. And I'd say I'm being the antagonist. I said, Well what happens to a person no one ever loved him in life and he dies and goes to heaven. I said, What happens to him? And that's what I would say to her. Heaven is made of dreams.
0: Which I really liked. Not being a religious person. Sometimes people's I don't want to say opinions because that sounds that doesn't sound right. Their belief in what they think heaven is doesn't doesn't float with me. It doesn't jive with my thoughts, but that one does. I like, I like that one. And I'm going to hang on to that one. And I had a quick question on, cause you used the term trail magic, but I wanted to tell the listeners that you found this Susie who did her trail ministry by following your nose because of the hamburger smell, <laughs> <laughs> which I really liked. Cause I know when, when you're out there riding your bike or hiking and you smell, ha- I mean, I always know it's time to fuel up when my body, you know, I'll be pedaling and it's like cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. <laughs> it's like, okay, I need to fuel up because the brain, is, uh, the brain is telling me something. And it's always burgers. It's really, I just thought, I thought that was really funny. But there's trail angels and trail magic. You want to tell the listeners what that's like for those people who are never going to venture onto the AT like you did? Yes, trail
1: angels are those people. Uh, who you meet along the trail, who do you a kind deed, do you a favor, and that deed or favor is called trail magic. And a lot of times at the intersections, you have people, couples, families, whatever, they would set up tents, you know, uh, the canopy tents, they would have the grills out, and they would be cooking uh, hamburgers, hot dogs, and they'd have, you know, an array of, of salads for hikers, you know, along with uh, the soda, iced tea, water, and they'd have desserts for you. So, Whenever you got to a a major, like, uh, I would say county road or state road, you know, you're always looking, oh, man, trail magic. Or people would leave coolers alongside the road, you know, with bags full of goodies. and, And, yeah, that was always a highlight of your day when you found trail magic. And I was the recipient of a lot of trail magic, you know, in various forms along the trail.
0: So there was also, go ahead.
1: <laughs> I would say if, if, if your listeners ever get out to one of these trails, whether it be, you know, Pacific Crest, Continental Divide, Appalachian Trail, they want to do a good deed, you know, get a styrofoam cooler, put some beverages there, put some candy bars or cookies in there and leave it aside to the trail and, you know, put a little sign on there, trail magic. And it's, for, for a hiker, it, it it makes your day. I <laughs> believe <Apple? laughs>
0: I believe it. So you said Pacific Crest Trail. We're going on a three-week road trip up the West Coast. So I might have to do that.
1: Yes, you'll be paralleling at certain parts, the Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah.
0: Okay, well I will definitely look that trail up and whenever we connect to the right places, I'll see what I can do about spreading my own trail magic. That'll be that'll be fun. I like And then that you'll idea. be a trail angel. I like it. <laughs> As, as opposed to my typical Heaven's Devil persona. <laughs> so you also met some pretty unique characters. I would say one step removed from some famous people. Who who touched you the most and why? Because the this whole time you just keep seeming to have like spiritual revelations. And a lot of times it was tied into who you met or who you thought you met.
1: Other than the guardian angel incident. which out. I'll tell the reader buy the book. I met my garden <laughs> angel in Klingman's Dome. But the incidents that touched me the most, you know, where I, I fell into Laurel Creek and thought I had drowned and met this woman in the woods who I thought was my deceased aunt who was a nun who passed away in the 1940s. What touched me the most was the people I met that were affected by Alzheimer's. And uh, there, it seemed like every state I'd go to, uh, I'd run into somebody. Who was affected by the disease? And the first incident happened in when my wife and I. We were in Hiawassee. Uh, a snowstorm had closed in the mountains, so I was trying to drum up business for the hike, and I ended up this pawn shop. And it was, it was like out of the Twilight Zone. I walk in, there, nobody's there, and it was all these stringed instruments, top-rate first-line instruments. You know, guitars, banjos, fiddles, mandolins. You know, Fender, Guild, Martin. And you know, I'm not a musician like that, but and then I hear this, you know, can I help you, young man? So Carol Underwood came from behind the door, and he saw it was a hiker. He said, would you like some coffee? So we had some coffee. He says, come on back in the garage. So I expected an auto garage. I go in the back of the garage. He had created a, like, mini Grand old Opry stage. And I was there around lunchtime, and different people came in with their instruments, and they were just having a jam session. So I, he said, Did you play? I said, Well, I, in high school, I played a little bass guitar. So they got me a bass guitar and I plunked along. And when I got done, he passed around the hat because he told people I was hiking for the Alzheimer's Association. Nah, I think I raised like 50 something bucks. And it was just from a handful of people. And then I was leaving this big, burly guy and he had hands like catcher's Smiths, right? And he's probably in his late 70s. So I'm walking out the door. He says, he says, Paul, I said, could I talk to you for a minute? I said, yeah, sure thing. He said, he said, he almost, had, he almost had tears in his eyes. He said, I had to put my wife in a nursing home for Alzheimer's two weeks ago. He said, he said, I applaud what you're doing. He said, remember this failure is not an option on your hike. And I said, oh boy, here comes the pressure now. So that was <laughs> one incident. And it seemed like there were a number of incidents as I went through the hike Probably one of the touching moments, I was up in Connecticut at, at uh, Falls Village, and it was early morning, and this lady was out for a walk. So I stopped her and I said, you know, is there like a coffee shop around where I can get you know a, cop- a cup of coffee and a donut? So we started she talking about the hike, and all of a sudden, tears start streaming down her face, and she reaches out and she grabs me in a bear hug. And I thought, geez, I said, you know, <laughs> and, and then she steps away and apologizes. She says, oh, I'm so sorry, Paul. I'm so sorry. She said, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she said, six months ago and committed suicide. And it was like, it was like for the rest of the day, those tears were stained on my shirt. And I, I could not get the thought of this woman out of my mind. I, I thought about her every day. That's because later on in the day, I met a, a woman in her, she was probably in her mid 50s. And she was with her mom and dad, and they were hiking, taking a short hike. And I recognized the lady, I just looked at her and I knew because and she says, she says, My mom has Alzheimer's. She said, and I like to get her outside. So she enjoys this. And it was like, wow, here was both ends of the spectrum. You know, a woman that's a caregiver for her mother gets her out on the trail to keep her active as and as much as she could. And then you have a gentleman who decided, you know, I can't live with this disease and took his own life. And there were there were a number of incidents like that. Here, here's my here's the most funny one. I'm, I'm climbing. I'm in New York, climbing down Bear Mountain, ready to go into the, the zoo. And these two older ladies pull up and they must they had to be in their early 80s, you know, silver haired ladies. And he said, young man, <laughs> he said, can you give us directions to West Point? And I had been to West Point a number of times when I worked for the government. And my daughter went up there one time to visit the campus. So I, I knew a little bit about the area. So I give them directions. And one of the ladies, she says, do you mind if I ask your personal question? And I've got <laughs> this a number of times. She says, aren't you a little old to be out here doing this? And I told her about Hermshike raising money for Alzheimer's. So they said, OK. So I'm watching them. They, it was a big parking lot because it was a nice size state park there. So I'm watching them. And I told them to turn them right. To get out on the road and turn left to head north. They turn left and coming back around the parking lot. I says, "Oh, geez, I said, how could they misunderstand the instructions? So they pull up to me again. They roll down the window and the lady says, here, I want you to have this. And she hands me a $20 bill. And she said, my husband is in a nursing home for Alzheimer's. She said, I will pray every night that you successfully complete the hike. And then off they went. This time they turned right <laughs> and it was up to West Point. But there were numerous stories like that of people I met whose families were, you know, affected by or they were dealing with the Alzheimer's disease.
0: Well, you could tell from my background that I'm part of the Alzheimer's Association as well. But I connected tremendously with the story about the, the woman with her parents, because I used to take my mom to a regional park nearby. Was about a ten minute drive from the care home that she lived in. She was a advanced Alzheimer's, so a ten minute drive felt like forever for her. So if any further was, it got stressful for the two of us. So I was, we're very blessed because there's two regional parks, one of which is pretty flat, has a pool. We'd go watch the following summer, like so. This is 2018. We'd go watch the kids in the swimming pool. Always tell people we we're like the creepy old ladies watching the kids. <laughs> she's, she's the old lady. I'm not old. Anyway, but yeah, I used to take her to the regional park. It was, even though some of the trails had a minor slope upwards, she could handle it. But she got to the point where her visual processing was so bad that she would try to avoid walking on her own shadow which was hysterical and frustrating all at the same time. And it, I'm really glad that we managed to do that. And I took her out all the time. We'd, Like I said, we'd go to the park and watch kids. It got harder. So thankfully we started going to a park. Oh, it was probably, I'm not even sure it was two miles from where she, she lived. And we just watched all the kids. And I, I've told people, last year and this year I was so blessed. She fell and broke her leg and that was the last straw for her body dealing with the Alzheimers and she passed away March 31st 2020 and I did not have to figure out what I was going to do for her with her. I mean there was not not kids in the park, you could not go to the library. I mean everything we did was gone. So I'm very grateful that we didn't have to deal with that and I don't even know I didn't see her the last two weeks of her life. I did see her the day before. I don't know what would have happened April, May, June of 2020, because we all know what was going on. It's just, it would have been a huge challenge, but it's. Yes, with the COVID.
1: I, I, yeah. I, I can't it, imagine families who couldn't see their loved ones. That was, you know.
0: No, and I advocated a lot last year for, especially once we got into the summer of 2020, is that, you know, I understand taking precautions to prevent them from getting covid cuz covid on top of alzheimer's is definitely a death sentence in my my humble armchair physician opinion and it just you know i understood that but the isolation was so bad for them and i the people that were taking care of loved ones at home who were also now, their caregivers weren't coming in, the adult day programs were closed. I mean, it was like they were all locked in solitary confinement. It was just horrible for everybody. And I am hoping, and I hope I can somehow be part of this process in some way, I don't know exactly which way yet, to basically say, okay, that was really ugly. Let's figure out a better way to handle something like this. My mom's community had had a really big flu outbreak in the winter of 2018 and shit yeah you know, they were this was one of the the typical assisted living memory care communities it was so bad they had to shut the dining room down in the assisted living portion of the community and serve everybody's meals in their rooms which is what they did during covid which okay so they kind of had a trial run but you know to keep people out of the care homes I did go back to my mom's care home the day before Halloween and I delivered handmade greeting cards and little treats and little fun things and so they did let me in so that you know was obviously in the fall well before we were past the really bad parts so I don't really know what their protocols were but we can't we can't lock them up to keep you know we can't lock them away to keep them safe from one thing and kill them with isolation so we got to you know, I'm hoping that we've learned a lot of things about community and and not being isolated. And my brain is trying really hard not to remember the opposite of isolation, but the connections, the human connections and all that I think is so important. So I'm hoping that we find better ways of dealing with these kind of things. And I hope I'm 54. I hope that I don't have to deal with this again for the rest of my life. <laughs> That will that's a goal. And My paternal grandmother lived to 103, so I'm very convinced that I have, you know, another 50 years to go. So, right there, so
1: there's some, there's some there's some long life genes there.
0: Yes, and my maternal grandmother lived to 91 with vascular dementia. So I've told people that stubbornness is a genetic trait on both sides of my family, so you know, you're stuck with me. <laughs> so what let's see, there was a question I was going to ask you that we segued and I love it when my brain does this. What, what did you get out of this, this hike that you're taking with you as you, as you live another 30, 40 years? Well, maybe 30. Cause that was 12, about 12 years ago when we didn't really talk about Alzheimer's and it's still kind of a taboo subject, which we have to also have to fix.
1: Cause uh what I tell people, uh, and, and it, that kind of uh, spurred this book on. I I had a childhood friends who married, and they were they were going to be married. Uh, they're going to celebrate their 40th anniversary, and she came down with Alzheimer's in her late 50s, Oof. and she passed away a couple of years ago. And I've known these people, oh geez, since I was like 10 years old. And oh, it, my. It really struck me that okay. It wasn't until after my mother's death that the pieces started to fall together for the book. And then I was, you know, I was kind of ambivalent about doing this because, you know, people said, well, we got enough. Tra-. I said, it's not a trail journal." I said, it's a love story. I said, set against the background or love stories set against the background of the Appalachian Trail. So when this lady came with down with Alzheimer's and her husband, you know, he kept her home until the day she passed. And it was... Uh, another tremendous love story. And I said, wow, I said, I, I I gotta, I gotta finish this book, tell my story just to give some hope and comfort. to families affected by Alzheimer's and in essence, tell them that there's the purpose why their loved one came down with this disease that I had mentioned earlier. We don't know what it is, you know, but we're all kind of universally connected in the great cosmos here. You know, we're, uh, you know, getting back to the spiritual thing, yeah, you know, heaven and hell, no, I personally, I don't think so anymore, I think we, we go back to whatever, the creator, you know, whatever that may, I don't know what that may be, And because you read that, you read the chapter about Ed McGah, the uh, mm-hmm. Lakota medicine man, and he, he was always telling me, Paul embraced the mystery, because that's what book religions today, and he was talking about white man's religions, he said, you know, they gotta have a book to explain everything, he said, no, that's, that's not what the Native Americans believe," he said. "We religion to us is from the heart, not necessarily the head. We embrace these mysteries of the universe. So it was like, whoa! That was that was, that was an experience meeting the the Eagle Man and and at the uh, Crazy Horse Monument.
0: Which well, I liked that sec- that that chapter. Supposedly, I have a three times great grandmother on my maternal side that was a Native American. <laughs> Now she didn't show up in the DNA testing my daughter and I did, you know, the twenty three and Me. So I don't know, but it was recent family genetic tracing that my mom and my grandfather did in the late nineties, early two thousands. So it's it's not one of those family lores that you hear people say, oh, I, you know. Great-grandma was a Native American. No, they they ran into trouble tracing the family tree because apparently, you know, Native Americans don't have government papers. So I'm going to have to talk to my... No no. paperwork on file. No. (laughs) So I don't know. Um, Thought about redoing it. Not a priority at this point. I'll have to talk to my uncle, my mom's younger brother. But my mom always said things like, everything happens for a reason. And when I was a much younger adult, like in my early 20s, she'd say, everything happens for a reason. And it's like, lady, if you tell me that one more time, I'm going to punch you in the head. Because she always said that when, like, you got laid off from a job. Everything happens for a reason. Well, I'm not seeing a good reason for this. Thank you. Oh, me someday. <laughs> well, you know, and she wasn't wrong. That also was super irritating. It's like, lady, you always said that it was so irritating and yet you were right, which was also irritating. So, but I really, there are days I think, I wonder what she'd say if she, you know, now she's gone, looks back and says, well, the reason I got Alzheimer's was X. So I'm kind of hoping I find that answer or someday know that answer. I might have to wait until after I'm gone. I don't know. But that was kind of one of the things throughout reading the book was, you know, you kept saying connect the dots, and we're all connected cosmically, and I just kept coming back to everything happens for a reason.
1: I could have said that, but it wouldn't sound too good in the book.
0: Well, um, you know, and I don't know if that's like you say it, and it's a self self fulfilling prophecy, you know, because you're like obviously you know you get laid off, so you have to find a new job that puts you on a new path or whatever challenge you get tossed you got to deal with it because apparently you know you can't just sit in the corner and wait for the challenge to go away because that won't happen so i always kind of wondered is it really you know is it like the universe writing you know it's like nope nope you're on the wrong path we're going to go over this way now and i don't know just one of these days i got to find an answer to that question so because okay, so I, prob- I
1: i tell people since we're uh, this all connected, I tell, we're, you're here to serve other people. You may not know what the reason is. And it's because uh, I, I stayed at, at the hostel called the Greasy Creek Friendly.
0: I remember that one.
1: And the lady that ran it, CC, she was, uh, she had just found a, a new church and she was on her own spiritual journey and, and she was about a little younger than me. So it was nice to talk and converse with somebody that, you know, about the same age. So during our conversation, I spent there a couple of nights because we got weathered in and we were just talking. I was talking about my spiritual journey. She was talking about her spiritual journey. And She said, Paul, she said, always remember this as you go up the trail. She said, you are the answer to someone else's prayers. And I said, wow, that's what it's all about. You know, yeah. If I can touch someone in a compassionate way, you know, in my daily life, then that's my purpose for being here. So that that was kind of that was kind of a mantra i i I would go to sleep at night and I think yeah you're the answer to somebody's prayer somebody you met everyone you meet is is waging a battle facing a battle in daily life you know whether family's battling with some kind of disease or some you know whatever some kind of substance abuse or some kind of personal emotional problems and it was if you can be the answer to somebody's prayer
0: well that's one of the reasons I continue this podcast because I have learned so much from my listeners. When I started, I thought I had lots of advice to share. It didn't take long to find out, mm, maybe I didn't. And after my mom passed away, you know, people asked, well, are you going to still do the podcast? And this is the middle of the pandemic. I didn't have anything else to do. I basically retired from my portrait photography career because <laughs> can't see people, can't take their pictures. So it <laughs> just seemed like a good time to make a shift. and. You know, I, that's that's kind of how I, 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 my husband and I, and my dad, his father, we're all Rotarians. So we all have hearts for service. And that's just kind of, you know, I have nothing better to do but to help as many people as I can. So I kind of like the, you're the answer to somebody else's prayers, although my initial reaction is oh please no not me
1: <laughs> yes you
0: it, I, I
1: i ended the book with the word namaste that's mm-hmm. and you know someone someone preached that to me on the trail one day and it was like you know i recognize the divine spark the divine spirit the divinity in you and i bow to that and that was like wow here it is you know the the old altar boy you know raised uh, steeped in the you know catholic ritual catholic tradition and yeah Namaste.
0: Namaste. Well, that sounds like a you, perfect. You, this
1: your program is the answer to someone. You were reaching out and touching people. That's you know, and, and I, I, I salute you and I applaud you for that. The work that you're doing, you know, for Alzheimer's families.
0: Well, I hope to do more. That's my plan, my next chapter. Just still try to figure it out a little bit, but I like Namaste, and we will, we will end it there.
1: Okay, sounds good. It's been a pleasure. It's been a delightful afternoon to speak with you. And, you know, I thank you for the invite.
0: I hope this chat has made you interested in reading Paul's book, Dancing with the Mountains. The link is in the show notes. I do this to help support the authors who give us their time to be on the show. I hope that some of them are interesting enough that you also help support them. Coming up next week is a repeat guest, Roz Jones, and she's gonna be talking to us about the differences between telehealth doctor's appointments and in-person doctor visits, when to do one versus the other, and all things doctor appointments. It's definitely something you're not gonna wanna miss, so make sure you are subscribed or following, depending on your podcast platform of choice. And as always, I will be in your ears again next Tuesday. Coming up, a little blurb from me about something new coming down the road. Are you looking for relevant, trustworthy health, wellness, and lifestyle information? I'm joining the launch of Retreat. Retreat is a first of its kind free social media app that focuses solely on health, wellness, and lifestyle content. The platform hosts live, interactive audio chats led only by vetted health experts while allowing experts and users to post and share videos, pictures, and thought pieces. Users can also meet others that share similar health and or lifestyle challenges. Informing communities of like-minded individuals, Retreat wants to empower people to share their experiences with others to guide them on a journey to better health and living. I'm joining because I want a less crowded space to build a community of listeners, caregivers, and other experts. Watch my current social media feeds for more information about their official launch date. I think we're all going to love this new platform.